Welcome to Your Gal Friday, a podcast about female leaders, innovators, and rule breakers. Each week, your hosts will shine a spotlight on an amazing gal and talk about what we can all learn from her. Brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. Welcome to Your Gal Friday. I am Dr. Leah Leach. And I'm Phoebe Freer. Today we are talking about a gal who is the mother of the civil rights movement, whose behind-the-scenes work inspired students and adults to be activists and cause political and social change. Today we're talking about the amazing life and legacy of your gal, Ella Baker. Yay, I'm so excited about Ella Baker this week. Um, Yay! And in fact, this week was going to be Rosa Parks. However... Leah had the great idea to do Ella Baker, and I'm super, super, super glad that you did, because, Yay! oh my goodness, this is, this is a handful. This is like... It we, is mind-blowing information. It is. <laughs> we're we're going to dig into a lot of stuff today. All right, so Ella Baker was born as Ella Josephine Baker in Norfolk, Virginia, on December 13th of 1903. Her parents were Georgina Ross Baker and Blake Baker. Now, I found a verbal interview with Ella Baker, and I will be referencing that quite a bit here, especially because, like, the first hour of her interview was all about her personal life and her growing up life, and it's just really cool because I got to hear some of this stuff from her own words. It was such a really cool resource to have, especially with fact-checking stuff. And we'll also link to it on the website as well. So yes, our listeners absolutely. will be able to hear Ella's voice and yeah. be able to hear more about her childhood in detail oh, as yeah, well. So we'll like, have those links. Absolutely. There's so much more that we're not going to be touching on just because there's a lot of information. But it's really yeah, cool Yeah, just because of time. It. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, it's really cool hearing it from her own words, though. Absolutely. Now, Ella said that her parents were both from different sections of North Carolina. They met in school at an academy that had been established by a black New Englander. Now, her father went to Norfolk to make his quote-unquote fortune, and her mother stayed in her, in her home and taught schooling. Now, her father did his best to woo Georgina, and at the end, it worked, and they got married. Now, Ella's mother gave birth to eight children. At least, that's what Ella heard. But there were only four that lived to maturity and that Ella knew personally. Now, when Ella was seven years old, her family moved from Norfolk to her mother's rural hometown of Littletown, North Carolina. Now, her father had a good job, and her mother was very articulate and educated, but tended to the house and didn't really have a job at this point, which was okay with everybody. Her, her full-time job was taking care of her children and making sure they were raised in a well-educated home. That's a full-time job. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, my gosh, yeah. And her, her mom was like top notch her her mom it was really cool listening about her mom because you can really tell how much ella was shaped just by her mother which awesome is so cool to me now ella's family had a two-story six-bedroom house ella said by the standards at the time they were pretty much middle-class citizens now ella's grandparents however were all born into slavery and grew up on plantations, including Ella's maternal grandmother named Bet Ross. Now, this is where things get interesting. And this is also where I need to start clarifying a couple things. 
I checked like four different websites that say, and I quote, one of Ella's early influences was her grandmother, who had been a slave. Now, Ella's grandmother told her stories of slave revolts and related her own sad tale of being whipped for refusing to agree to an arranged marriage. Now, this is one of the first facets listed on any site about Ella. It's like the first thing you read, okay? <laughs> yep. However, I found in this interview, straight from her own words, she said that her grandmother, Bet was the offspring of the master... And she was the house person, so she that was considered, like, less of the harder labor, so to speak. Like, she wasn't out in the field, she was inside the house. Right. Now, at which point, she was of a marriageable age. However, the mistress wanted to have her married to a man whom we all knew as Uncle Carter. He was also light, and he, and Bet did not like Carter. And so, when her grandmother refused to concur with the wishes of the mistress, the mistress ordered her whipped. However, the master, who was still her father, refused to have her whipped. Ah. He, yep. So he was no doubt old then, but he did put her out in the farm, and she even had to plow. She remembered plowing, and so she would be plowing and had to warm her hands by the horse's belly, she said. They'd start Aww. to plow and breaking up land in February. During oh. my period, yeah. people would start doing that. I've heard her say that she would plow all day and dance all night. She was defiant, mm. you know. Which, this was all Ella's words. And I just love it. Because clearly her inspiration and spunk came from her mother and her grandmother. Super cool. But it does still appear we have the story a little askew. It makes a compelling story, but we're here to tell you what we find to be truth. And I, what I think Ella said makes it even more fascinating and complex, and maybe even more complicated than people like, because, you know, her grandmother getting whipped, like, that's the, the it's like a very po poignant thought. It's a very, it, it's a very straightforward sentence, but the fact but the this whole story of her father and the mistress, like, it's so complicated and it's so hard for Americans nowadays to wrap our minds around this that we just go to the easy answer. And I feel like that we do it more often than we care to admit just so that we can kind of simplify our own American history. Also, I think a part of it is sometimes we're not listening. And so we Absolutely. hear one bit of it Absolutely. and we think that's what it is. And we need to really listen when it comes to history and to understand the complexity of it. And there are multiple sides to every story. <laughs> Absolutely. And for some reason, the whole blank statement of her grandmother getting whipped, that's what made me go, okay, I need to look up this story from her grandmother, see if there's any sources on just her grandmother, which is how I found this interview. Right, because it defines it who Ella her. is. Yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. So it's like, if we just open our eyes a little more, we'll see how much more complex this world is and how much more we still have to learn about ourselves and how much, how much, it, it's hard, this week is hard for me because Americans are not great it's like i'm not proud right, right now. you yeah. know what i mean it's, like it's american very hard history reading sucks. our little uh, teenage history if you will <laughs> yeah absolutely it's like wow we were awful people and we need to correct this 
Right. Yep. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we were babies once who did not have uh, equality like answers. And so we're still learning. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So Ella went to boarding school when she was about nine years old, and her mother was very, very, very particular about what kind of schooling her children got. Now, when Ella was only 14, she was accepted into Shaw University and stayed there until she graduated. Now, Shaw was a Baptist school, which her family strongly believed in. Ella spent most of her childhood attending a Baptist church. She said that it helped her learn how to control her temper and just overall be a good human, as I would say. Now, in school, Ella always obeyed rules, but was not afraid to challenge them. I know, we're all super shocked and surprised (laughs) to hear about this. (laughs) Foreshadowing. Now, Ella said that the English teacher whom uh, she had through college was Benjamin Frawley. Now, he was the one who said to her to not let anyone teach her public speaking because it might, quote-unquote, spoil her. Uh. And so it goes down in history. Right. It's like final last words almost. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, all right, you have no idea what kind of, like, what kind of, what you unleashed on the world. Like, thank Uh you. Oh, tell her she can't. Tell her she can't do something. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Because she will. But also, in the way I see it as well, is like, if you get taught public speaking, maybe he was worried about her losing her own voice and like losing it and like like learning how to format a script like if you learn how to format it it's great but you might lose your story because you're so focused on formatting it like maybe maybe you know, she, she mean, would lose the down-to-earthness instead of the yeah. formality of speaking yeah. it's a possibility it's yep. like there's two different sides to this like but either way it's like wow all right then <laughs> right <laughs> Now, she graduated as class valedictorian in 1927, and Uh so it goes on. I love that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I found a great resource, too. I found the Ella Baker Papers from the New York Library. They have a wonderful biography about her, as well as a whole bunch of her letters. And in it, they describe how Ella arrived in Harlem after graduation. And it was towards the end of the Harlem Renaissance, and it was just before the Wall Street crash of 1929. It was in those post-university days that Ella would become the mentee of George Schuyler. George was a black journalist and a former lieutenant in the army. He was a socialist and he was the founder of the Young Negro Cooperative League or the YNCL. Now, if you are fans of our Hamilton episodes and you were wondering, I just said the name Skylar and it's bothering you. Is it? Or is there any connection? Um, I, I will go on that little tiny rabbit hole. There is yeah, no, uh, it bothered a very- me too. I needed <laughs> I to know, know exactly. this as well. <laughs> it is clear that George's ancestor did serve under the command of General Philip Schuyler, but it's not clear that if the name was a tribute or a relation to Hamilton's father-in-law. So we do love our connections between episodes so uh yes so possible relation but possible also just admiration to pick up the Skylar name is where it came from (laughs) right either way we've got a link in there somewhere 
Exactly. <laughs> so Ella worked with George, who was one of the first to respond to the black community during the Great Depression. The YNCL set up consumer cooperatives, basically like bulk buying clubs. And they not only helped the poor in Harlem, but they educated consumers. And when we're talking about education, we're talking about, quote, a revolution of black economic and political power, which is very powerful than just the word educating consumers. Right. <laughs> They're cow. talking about basically a revolution, which is awesome. It's a commitment of the YNCL was to have 25 men and 25 women emancipated economically in five years. That was the idea of the program. So Ella also worked as a contributing writer to newspapers that George was an editor of, and she worked her way up to become a staff editor for two black newspapers in New York City. Ella was also selected to be the executive director of the YNCL as well. Now, because of her effectiveness there, she was awarded a scholarship to Brookwood Labor College, and Ella studied consumer economics and consumer education. And according to the biography from the New York Public Library, they said, quote, this was the first scholarship awarded to a black person by the Cooperative League of America. So... How about that for being first? Yeah. (laughs) I've also got to add to this that Ella is one of those few gals that we have seen to get an education in something so specific as a consumer econs and then have a job after job after job relating to it. So because, you know, there's always that joke that you have that college major, but you end up doing something else. All right. So after completing her studies, Ella worked at the New York Public Library Adult Education Program, where she taught literacy programs as well as consumer education programs to young mothers. Ella also worked at the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, as a consumer educator instructor and supervising educator. So from 1937 to 1940, Ella was the fundraiser for the National Association of Consumers and Education. She was also the publicity officer for Harlem's own cooperative. She did a lot in consumer education. I was absolutely amazed. She built a really solid reputation and a serious resume of a gal who was an organizer, an educator, and an expert in consumer affairs. Now, getting back to her personal life just a little bit, Ella married her high school sweetheart, TJ or Bob Roberts, in the late 1930s. Now, their marriage fizzled around 1947, we're going to say. There's really not much out there on her marriage, and even the interview I found when she was asked point-blank about her marriage, she actually redirected and talked about the rest of her life and the social issues she fought for, saying so much as even that, like, this, oh, this kind of has nothing to do with what we're talking about so let's move on and she completely redirected right she didn't want to talk about it right (laughs) i mean i can't blame her so that's really all we know but we know do know she was married for a time um now in 1938 ella was advised by schuyler to apply for the position of the youth director for the national association for the advancement of colored people aka the naacp Um, But another person was actually appointed to this position. Now, two years later, she was asked to reapply. Now, again, the position was awarded to someone else. However, this time, the selection committee offered the position of assistant field secretary to Ella. Now, Ella accepted the position on a six-month trial basis and stayed with them for quite a few years. 
Now, it was said that she was offered this position because of her exuberance, and the position she applied for was almost too small for her character, honestly. So she said, quote, So they were impressed enough to not want me for the youth, so I became one of their assistant field secretaries, and I started working. I went to Washington, where a campaign was being conducted by a chief campaign conductor, who was then a Mrs. Daisy Lampton of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which, by the way, to me is pretty cool. That's only like three hours away from me. Um, from there, I went to Birmingham, Alabama, and that was my beginning with the Southern lifestyle. I like that she was around your neck of the woods. Look at that. I know. It's super (laughs) cool. Now, while Ella was in Birmingham, the NAACP actually promoted her to branch director, which, I mean, I guess is cool, but at the same time, they didn't bother to tell her about this. Well, you know. Um, (laughs) so yeah, needless to say, she was not super happy about this. I believe she was a woman who wasn't afraid of saying things like they were and confronting people and discovering that she was working for an organization that had different values kind of set her off. Fair. So she actually, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. So she resigned from the director position in 1946, but worked with the New York branch to integrate local schools and improve the quality of education for black children. Now, during this time, Ella had also started to take care of her niece, Jackie. Jackie was about seven or eight at this time, and she had been raised by Ella's parents until her father died. Now, Ella took the time to take care of her niece and regroup, but she was really never one to sit still. She still attended meetings at night while sending Jackie to school. Now, during this time, Ella's sister had died from cancer, and her marriage had ended, as we said before. Now, as the civil rights movement began to heat up following the Brown versus Board of Education case, civil rights activist Bayard Rustin, labor leader A. Philip Randolph, and attorney Stanley Levinson, along with a host of religious and labor groups, formed the organization with Ella called In Friendship. Now, the purpose of this coalition was aimed to rally financial support around the struggle for desegregation of Southern schools, which Ella clearly felt very strongly about, especially due to her mother and grandmother, in my personal opinion. Now, the organization was also to support victims of, quote, segregationist vigilantes. Now, In Friendship held fundraising events in Madison Square Garden in 1956 to help pay for the Mississippi Improvement Association's legal fees and to purchase new vehicles for the carpool during the Montgomery bus boycott, which we will get into just a little bit more later. Oh, yes. Now, remaining closely connected to the people that she had met when she lived and traveled through the South, working for the NAACP, Ella was well informed of the ongoing grassroots organizing and emerging struggles taking place there. It's incredible because it could have easily felt like an uphill battle. Segregation, making new laws against blacks, it's like they never caught a break. But that's why they fought, and that's why people like her and Martin Luther King Jr. are so important. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of which, so the group In Friendship actually turned into the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. Um, It was from Ella's idea that the Black Southern churches could provide organizational structure to the desegregation movement, coupled with nonviolent strategies that created the SCLC. It was in a two-day meeting on January 10th and 11th in 1957 in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, And in case you are unfamiliar, the Southern Christian Leadership Congress, the SCLC, that's a majority of where we know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from. 
that was his group. Absolutely. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Just connecting those dots just in case. But uh, Ella, yeah. <laughs> Ella would move to Atlanta and become the executive secretary of the SCLC. She was responsible for, quote, organizing general operations, developing administration and managerial procedures for the office, end quote. She created the work environment and the procedures that would get the national attention and cause radical change in the country. Now, the crusade for citizenship was her main project, and that involved educating blacks about voter rights. There was resistance on this project as the NAACP was also working on voter registration projects, and the leaders in the SCLC were kind of resistant of both of them working on it at the same time. Now, on February 1st, 1960, four black students walked into the Greensboro Woodworth lunch counter. They sat down at the whites-only lunch counter and began a nonviolent protest. David Richmond, Franklin McCain, Azel Blair Jr., and Joseph McNeil stayed until closing. Fifteen students joined them the next day. Then, 300 students joined in. And then, a thousand so sit-ins spread across the South and received national media attention. Ellis saw this and knew that young people would define the civil rights movement if they could be strategic and organized. Within months of that first sit-in, Ella took the lead and sponsored an SCLC conference at Shaw University in 1960. And remember, Shaw University was her alma mater. That's where she went. So from this event, the SCLC, the NAACP, and CORE, which is the Council of Racial Equality, all wanted students in their groups. But many of the young people wanted to form their own group, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, or S-N-C-C, but everybody always says SNCC. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. SNCC is definitely easier. (laughs) Exactly. And for that reason, I will sometimes always spell it wrong. I always assume the acronym was S-N-I-C because I'm kind of phonetically doing SNCC, but it's S-N-C-C for the SNCC. Yes. And Phoebe was digging more into it, which I love. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right. So like Leah said, Ella left the SCLC in order to help the Student Nonviolent Coordination Committee or SNCC. So she was already leaving the SCLC after hearing what the students wanted to do to push forward. Now, Ella believed in SNCC and wanted to join them. It was not a branch of the SCLC, although they may have thought it would be or SCLC may have wanted it. Um, They wanted the power of the youth. Everybody wanted the power of the youth. They wanted it, Mm -hmm. but they did not have it. The SCLC was kind of branching off to somewhere Ella did not necessarily support anymore, so she moved on. Now, SNCC became one of the foremost advocates for human rights in the country. Now, Ella had a passion for helping the next, the next generation progress forward, and it showed through her actions. Now, I wanted to dig in a little deeper to understand the whole purpose of SNCC and all this other stuff. So, right, and what they did, how um, they organized. What they did, exactly. So, I'm going to give you just a little bit more background to this, just to kind of Put things into perspective. Now, SNCC was inspired by the Nashville and Greensboro sit-ins, which Leah already explained a bit. But these were when people would non-violently, quote-unquote, disobey segregation laws um, at lunch counters and in department stores. The fact that they had to fight for rights in every aspect of life is so tiring to think about. You have to go out in public 
and just fight to be able to basically exist in a normal, equal manner. It, it kind it, it this really bothers me. <laughs> it's it's absolutely exhausting, and it's a terrible yeah. thing to put a human being through of segregation based on uh, race, color, you know, background, ethnicity, sex. It's un it's absolutely unfair and just mind blowing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Snake helped organize more sit-ins and more nonviolent acts of protest. Now, you remember Rosa Parks, right? And how we were about to cover her? Rosa Parks, she had a sit-in on the bus on the Montgomery bus movement. You, you remember that? Well, she was really just the tip of the iceberg. It wasn't just her. It wasn't just her that, like, kind of pushed it over. No, SNCC literally organized groups of dozens and hundreds of people and thousands of people to do the same exact thing all over the country. People got arrested. People were forcefully removed. But in the end, it all ended up to the end of segregation. Well, eventually. Eventually. This is why... Right. Eventually. Yeah, it took some time. Eventually. It took some time. (laughs) Uh, Let me tell you. Now, this is why we're covering Ella Baker this week instead of Rosa Parks. However, we love Rosa Parks. Yes, but absolutely. Ella Baker, y'all it's, need to know. It's a, y'all, it's you a just ripple. just need to know. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, the Pleasy versus Ferguson was a landmark court case in 1896, which decided that racial segregation for public facilities was legal as long as they were, quote-unquote, separate but equal. Now, the decision le- legitimatized the many state laws reestablishing racial segregation that had been passed in the American South after the end of the Reconstruction era. Now, this is sometimes known to be the worst decision in U.S. Supreme Court history. Now, I'm not super well-versed in Supreme Court history, but this does seem to be one of the bigger mistakes. I I would say it's probably up there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's pretty much, yeah. It probably is the worst, but I would like to see a list first. (laughs) Yeah, same. Exactly. Exactly. It feels like we kind of went backwards in time, and it's pretty disgusting to me. Quite a bit. It took court cases like Brown versus the Board of Education to start implementing the fact that this separate but equal thing was unconstitutional. And that was in 1954. Right. That that, that was 54. Mm -hmm. It blows my mind. And that was just about segregating schools. Right. Not blanket across the public facilities. Just schools. This is just so very, tiring. <laughs> very slow. Right. Progress is very slow. slow. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. There are more court cases about segregation, including Morgan versus Virginia in 1946 and Boyan versus Virginia of 1960, which ruled that the segregated public schools were unconstitutional. However, the southern states had ignored the rulings and the federal government did nothing to enforce them. So buses for example, were still segregated to the point of having signs, white only, etc., which is simply ridiculous, and people like Ella Baker knew this. She believed in social change where everyone is involved, not just one leader. One big way to get people from all across the United States involved in social justice was the Freedom Rides. Now, the Freedom Rides were basically how it sounds. The idea was that the interracial people would sit on buses together, but not in a segregated manner. For example, a white and a black would sit next to each other, a black would sit in a, in a quote-unquote whites-only section, or and a black would also sit in their quote-unquote assigned seating to avoid arrest, and then to contact CORE 
and arrange bail for those who were inevitably arrested. Right. So it was strategic to try to like help everybody Mm -hmm. create awareness, but then also cause a little good trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now, remember, it was technically illegal for them to be arrested. But in the South, they technically kept enforcing old rules. Mm -hmm. And so they did arrest those who did not obey the old rules. Now, the Freedom Rides were all about challenging this unconstitutional act. The first Freedom Ride left Washington, D.C. on May 4th of 1961 and was scheduled to arrive in New Orleans on May 17th. Only minor troubles was encountered in Virginia and North Carolina, but John Lewis was attacked in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Some of the riders were arrested in Charlotte, North Carolina, in Winsboro, South Carolina, and Jackson, Mississippi. Now, Freedom Rides take many different kinds of meanings for me. Now, I was part of the Freedom Ride on 9-11, and in my hometown, there's this motorcycle ride every year, and it is called a 9-11 Memorial Ride or the Freedom Ride. Thousands of bikers and motorcyclists come together and ride a 40-mile loop together in celebration of our freedom and remembrance, of those who died on 9-11 and to a reminder that we stand together. Now, this is actually how I met my boyfriend, funny enough. Ah. So this ride could be seen as a form of protest against anyone out to take our own personal freedoms. But there's no threats of arrest in this. In fact, law enforcement helps us do this ride. Right. And the fact that there are freedom rides that literally fought for American freedoms while my grandparents were alive is so depressing to me. We've come a long way, but it feels like we've got so much farther to go. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Diane Nash was a Nashville College student who was a leader of the Nashville Student Movement and SNCC. She believed that if Southern violence were allowed to halt the Freedom Rides, the movement would be set back years. She puts to find replacements to resume the rides. On May 17th, a new set of riders, 10 students from Nashville who were active in the Nashville Student Movement, took a bus to Birmingham where they were arrested by Bull Connor and jailed. Now, the students kept their spirits up in jail by singing freedom songs. Out of frust- now, out of frustration, Connor drove them back up to Tennessee and dropped them off, saying, I just couldn't stand their singing. They immediately returned to Birmingham. Now, this makes me want to sing spirituals to anyone who dares get annoyed about this, <laughs> because, oh my goodness. Well, at the top of the show, uh, we mentioned how Ella is called the mother of the civil rights movement, and honestly, we are not sugarcoating it. Um, Ella was a mentor to many of the icons of the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks, Stokey Carmichael, John Lewis, Julian Bond, Bob Moses, and Diane Nash, who Phoebe just mentioned. So Diane Nash is the founder of SNCC and the leader of the Freedom Rides. And in an interview, Diane talks about Ella for the Biography Channel, and we'll actually have that link up on galsguide.org as well. But she said this about Ella. She said, quote, I could count on Miss Baker to be truthful, and she explained many things to me very honestly, and I would leave her feeling emotionally picked up, dusted off, and ready to go. She became a mentor to me. That's from Diane Nash. Now, John Lewis, who is also in SNCC and is currently a U.S. representative for Georgia, talked to Arnie Alberta about Ella, and he said, quote, She was so progressive, so radical, so militant in demand for action. If it weren't for Ella Baker, many of the young people that got involved in the movement 
wouldn't have been involved. And that's from John Lewis. So Ella worked with Rosa Parks in Montgomery and AACP office and the Leadership Conference Project. It's fair to point out that both Rosa Parks and Ella, Bar- and Ella Baker are both named the mother of the civil rights movement. Both of them get the name. <laughs> I have no Absolutely. problem with two moms of a movement. I'm just saying. <laughs> I also want to just take a moment to briefly single out Stokely Carmichael, because in case you don't know about him, um, and I've been finding more and more people who have never heard of him, and this cannot stand, (laughs) because uh, Stokely is the one who originated the phrase Black Power. Uh, In his book, Black Power, The Politics of Liberation, which was published in 1968, Stokely explains the meaning of black power. It's, quote, it's a call for black people in this country to unite, to recognize their heritage, to build a sense of community. It's a call for black people to define their own goals, to lead their own organizations. That's what black power means. Now, Stokely was a member of SNCC and he was jailed while being a freedom writer. He also worked to get more African-Americans to vote and even founded his own political party. Um, And it just so happens that when you form a political party, you have to choose a logo. And Stokely chose a Black Panther. Does it sound familiar? A little bit more in these days, right? Wakanda forever. Yes, absolutely. But a little different. Uh, So Stokely, he (laughs) didn't form the Black Panthers, not the Wakanda one, um, and not the one you're thinking out of uh, Oakland, California. But his work of self-defense, Black power, voting rights, and community can be seen in the inspiration of the later Black Panther organization by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. When it comes to bringing this now full circle back to Ella, women were the majority in organizations like SNCC and like the Black Panther Party, but it was the men who were seen as the figureheads. Women in the Black Panther Party, however, directly say that Ella was their inspiration in their leadership. That's so cool. I know. That's right. Mentors making the world better. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Ella did not stop in her activism career, for lack of a better word. She supported the Puerto Rican independence movement and spoke out against apartheid in South Africa, which just warms my heart. I hate that there are all these issues in the world, but it's really cool to see people stand up for other people in other parts of the world. Now, she was world conscious as well as country conscious. Ella allied with a number of women's groups, including the Third World Women's Alliance, or the TWWA, which makes sense as it was originated in the women's activism section of SNCC. Ah. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. I like it. Now, the Third World Women's Alliance was a revolutionary socialist woman of color organization aimed at ending capitalism, racism, imperialism, and sexism. All the isms. A lot to undertake. I'm, all the isms. I'm totally cool with things. eliminating all the isms. I like it. It's fine. Right. Exactly. <laughs> as long as it means equality, yes. <laughs> exactly. You know what? Exactly. Now, the TWWA was one of the earliest groups advocating an intersectional approach to women's oppression. Now, Ella also joined the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which actually Jane Addams started. And quote, right? Uh And she started it to, quote, bring together women of different political views and philosophical and religious backgrounds, determined to study and make known the causes of war and work for a permanent peace. 
Look it's at just that. so cool. Everybody's we're all intersecting. We don't always we don't always do it on purpose. Right. Sometimes. Well, we do. and I think like, I think we're building on each other. And even if uh, we are. they're not necessarily, you know, mindful, like, for example, if the TWWA wasn't mindful of Jane Addams accomplishments, they're still building mm-hmm. on each other. The the, the the foundation is still there and it's just another step and it's just closer to humanity. So I, I love those little little coincidences. Yeah, me too. Now, this particular organization was has national sections in 37 countries. So, Jane Addams was also world conscious. Um, global conscious, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, um, you can actually listen to our James Addams episode in the previous season. I think that was season two, but I could be wrong. I think it was um, season one, but I cannot remember the episode. I will link it on galsguide.org, though. <laughs> yeah, we'll link it. There we go. We solved all. We solved it. <laughs> Now, the fact that Ella was a woman of color put her in an interesting position for change, and I love how she used that to her advantage. Now, Ella remained active in various other organizations that are honestly tricky to keep track of. Um, In 1963, she served as a consultant to the Southern Conference Educational Fund, and from this position, she was able to direct financial support to the workers of SNCC. Now, in 1964, she was head of offices of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and Ella then became a consult to the Executive Council of the Episcopal Church. It seems that activism in church as well as in politics are not as uncommon as it may seem, which is actually pretty fascinating to me. Ella definitely used it to her advantage, um, and she persevered. She never stopped. Yeah, I love that. Well, in her later years, though, Ella would continue to give speeches and interviews in and around her home in Harlem. In a 1981 documentary called Fundy was made about her. Now, Fundy is a Swahili word meaning a person who passes down a craft to the next generation. Basically, a mentor or a master. So I love that. Ella unfortunately died on her birthday, December 13th, 1986. She was 83 years old and she had dedicated her life to civil rights. Ten years after her death in 1996, Van Jones, Diana Frapper, and Mike McLoon opened the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in Oakland, California. The organization helps, quote, organize with black, brown, and low-income people to shift resources away from prisons and punishment and towards opportunities that make our communities safe, healthy, and strong. There is also a school in Manhattan that is named after Ella as well. And her first biography was published about her in 1998 by Joanne Grant, who was also the same gal who produced the Fundy documentary as well. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. Right. Absolutely. Move on to uh, Legacy. Yes. I have this random note. So, um, to kind of put things in a little more perspective of, like, the time period that Ella grew up in, dates and times kind of, like... They're just numbers to me, mostly, until you give it to some perspective. Context. So yeah, you I'm, need the context yeah, for it. Yeah, context. I need the context. Exactly. So here's a little bit of context. Now, the Jim Crow laws were state and local laws that enforced racial segregation in the southern United States, as most of us know about Jim Crow laws. Now, the laws were enforced... Until 1965. They were not revoked until 1965. To give you a little bit more perspective, my parents just turned 50 this year. 
And the Jim Crow laws were finally disbanded only four years before they were born. Right. As Leah said in our last episode, we just, we need to do better. We need to be better. So much suffering in this country is over color of a man's skin, and we keep thinking it was so long ago to be our problem anymore. But it is our problem, and we need to own this, and we need to do better. Right. It wasn't that long ago. Mm -mm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, what do you think Ella's legacy was? Because she was obviously playing her part. She was trying to fix it. She was trying to make it better. Um, What do you think her legacy is within the civil rights movement? I think it's interesting. At the end of the day, it kind of was like she she didn't have children of her own, but she was all about the children. She was all about the next generation and making the next generation better and active and supportive. And one of her big things was she did not believe in... uh, There's a quote that she said something like, um, strong people don't need strong leaders. Right. So, in other words, strong people just need to come together and all search for social justice together at the same time. Everybody needs to participate. Everybody needs to be involved in some way or another to make anything happen. And she was clearly right. Like, it... I, I mean, even with everything and with all the thousands of people that she eventually got connected into this society, into this circle, into this movement, like, the Jim Crow laws still, it took till 1965. Like, it right. still took all this time. And it wasn't just Martin Luther King. It wasn't just Rosa Parks. It wasn't just Ella Baker. It was everybody pooling the resources and pooling it together And I think that's really the legacy she wants to leave behind is that we need to join together as a community. And even though like she was outspoken and strong-willed and didn't always get along with every organization, however, she knew when to move on. She knew the benefits of bringing people together and then moving on and then searching for justice. So it's like, I think just togetherness and creating this new beautiful world together is like the legacy she just wants us all to work together and i'll kind of piggyback on what you're saying too because she she held people to a very high standard but she held herself to the same standard so when she would kind of disagree here and there with martin luther king (laughs) she was holding herself to that same standard though she was. Right. Um, and right. it was for the movement. It wasn't for, you know what I mean, oh, one person and hurt feelings because they, they didn't take criticism well from a woman. Um, it was about the movement was more important. Um, and so right. she would take some stuff on the jaw <laughs> yeah, as absolutely. well and yeah. be like, okay, absolutely. that's what you do. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, for me, I mean... I found this quote. This quote kept coming up in multiple places during my research. Um, And it's attributed to Ella. And I, I, but I do not know the time period in which she said it or the context in which she said it. But to me, it instills uh, when I think of legacy, I think of, uh, I think of this quote of hers, which is, quote, the major job was getting people to understand that they had something within their power that they could use and that it could only be used if they understood what was happening and how group action could counter violence. Um, I really thought, uh, for me anyway, her legacy was giving truth to group power to stop persecution. Um, She believed in the youth. My 
goodness did she believe in the young people she did oh my god and I can see it too and I love it because when I go into schools um giving talks I love the energy that you do get from talking to young people who are woke uh who get it who are ready to you know to start change and to make the world better and to fix this crap that they have been handed um <laughs> I love that energy yeah, and it's like oh my yeah. goodness what happened to mine <laughs> Right. Oh wait, it's still there. It's I'm still holding on to it. <laughs> no, we're still we're still here. It Come just, on now. It doesn't feel shiny penny. That's all it is. You know what I mean? Like I see the youth and yeah. I feel shiny penny and it's like, okay, I'm still in it. I still have my penny and it's just getting a little dingy. <laughs> It's all good. But I'm still going. Uh, but Ella, she believed in community. She did not trust figureheads uh, who soaked in limelight yeah, and were hesitant with action. Mm-hmm. If they were more worried about how it was going to make them look on television, she did not like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> no. She's like, is it about how you'll look on TV or is it about the movement? Like, let's, you know, right. let's do something. Let's be real here. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, she she believed in people, not the person. That's one way to think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, she believed yeah, in absolutely. the movement. She didn't believe in the man. Um, you know what right. I mean? In the sense that it's one person. Um, and I really dig that. And I also see that in Black Lives Matter, in the Black Lives Matters movement, because it is absolutely. about the movement. It's not about the figurehead. However, in case listeners didn't know, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is actually co-funded by three women. So um, I encourage everyone to learn more about the BLM. Um, and I also encourage everybody to learn more about the Black Panthers as well, because uh, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> um, I see Also Wakanda School. But, exactly. You know, and Wakanda forever. Always. Always Wakanda forever. Always. <laughs> now, I see Ella's legacy as that motivating force, as a role model, as a mentor, as that example of change makers that are not always on the front page um, of the paper. Sometimes they are behind the scenes and that is just as important uh, to spark change. Um, and that's a legacy. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a different kind of leadership. It really is. Yeah. Definitely. So what did you learn from her? Seeing a, my my boyfriend is a Marine and he's a really great leader. And so we talk about leadership roles a lot. And like I'm a I'm a director, film director. And so we talk about leadership in, in different aspects, in different areas, but I never really thought about leadership as kind of more of a behind-the-scenes thing. Right. I mean, I guess not really that I like the limelight. I really don't like the limelight. I thought for a long time, like, I, I have all these um, social issues in my head that I really want to, like, address, and I want to be a world changer and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, but I don't want to be this figurehead thing like I don't want to be that person you know right so Ella really taught me that like I don't have to be that person I can just be that somebody that's like oh who do you who is that I don't know who that is but x y and z happened and if you dig a little deeper it'll be because these people as a whole helped make it happen right so that's a really cool different perspective on leadership that I'm really going to take to heart and try to implement that in my own life honestly yeah it's um, a really important lesson because you don't see the people behind really the is. scenes that often and that's actually okay you know as long as you keep moving forward and you keep doing your thing and um another thing I learned was that here's how you be a real leader here's how you actually make a real difference it's not about me it's not about you it's not about uh, one individual it's about us as a whole as humanity now and that's kind of a lot about what 
Ella taught me this week. Yeah. A lot of it with leadership is when to stand up, when to sit down, uh, when to speak up, and when to listen. Um, absolutely. And that's a big part of it. And I think a lot of it is, uh, a lot of it is a lot more listening. Um, but also to, you know, to stand in line, you know what I mean? To stand right there. Like I'll stand with you. Like you need help. You got me. You know what I mean? I'm in this too. Cause I want the same thing. It is going to take a lot of us for a cultural Mm -hmm. change and the end of the day, it's worth it. So it's worth the work. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's worth educating, you know, yourself on where what is your hill? <laughs> what is the hill that you die on? What is the thing that you want to change? What is that change you right. want to see in the world? Um, and to be a participant in that using your best skills. And, you know, right. some of us are really, really great at public speaking. Some of us are really, really great at writing a grant application. You know what I mean? Like there's room for everybody. (laughs) Somebody's really, really good at knowing when people need coffee to keep them going. You know what I mean? They're all valuable. (laughs) (laughs) It's all part of the movement. So, yeah. I think for for me, what I learned from her is that history might remember those figureheads, but they wouldn't even be in the public memory if it was not for the hardworking men and women behind the scenes. Um, Ella Baker is uh, not a name that is as iconic to the movement, but her role is that uh, never-ending link of inspiration and encouragement for all of us to do better and to be better. So she's a very important link and spark in all of that. So, yes. Well, then that wraps it up for us. Here's a quote from Ella Baker. You didn't see me on television. You didn't see news stories about me. The kind of role that I tried to play was to pick up the pieces or put together pieces out of which I hoped organization might come. My theory is strong people don't need strong leaders. For more information about this week's gal, visit galsguide.org. To support the show, visit the Gals Guide Patreon page. Thank you so much for subscribing and listening to Your Gal Friday.